So, uh, it is now our third week in Joshua. <coughs> so, it's time to dispense with the uh, review from previous weeks. That'll help us finish the chapter tonight. Uh, I hope you're finding it interesting. We worked really hard to solve some of our technical difficulties from last week. And uh, we have really good things planned for you this week. Traditionally, I've written on the board a great deal. There'll be some more tonight. But uh, we're trying to utilize the screen more and more uh, for no other reason than we're recording all of this electronically so that when this study is over, if you attended uh, the study and want the notes, every scripture, every visual display, everything we've done will provide to you in a folder. And uh, we're, we're trying to get better at preserving this for future uh, classes and generations. Amen? Amen. So, <coughs> I'd like to begin in some uh, victorious prayer. Uh, I've gone through the whole gamut of feeling sad at all the sickness and setbacks, to getting good and angry about it all, to now appropriately putting my foot on that side of the devil's face. And he can't do a thing about it. Amen. When we pray, Amen. we win. Amen. 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 So who wants to pray like a winner? Wow. Well, so, somebody get after it. Mighty God, we love you today. Lord, we thank you for the, the teams that you are raising up in this body of believers. Lord God. Teams just like Moses and Aaron. Teams just like Joshua and Eliezer. Lord God, thank you, mighty King, for covenant relationships. Thank you, mighty God, for your overcoming victorious body of believers that are sitting in this room, Lord. Lord God, we want to be victorious in here, and we want to be victorious out there. More importantly, Lord, tonight, Lord God, we are hearing your words ring in our ears, and in our mind, and in our heart, Lord. Here is the land. Here is the land. Here is the land. Now go and take the land. Lord God, we want to be victorious, Lord God. We want to actually go and perform the righteous acts that you have prepared in advance for us to do. Lord God, we open up our minds. We open up our hearts. We open up our souls to you tonight, Lord God. We will not be denied tonight, Lord God. The victory of your church. We will not be denied tonight, Lord God. The revelation of your word. In the name of Jesus, we ask that you would speak to every heart in this room, Lord God, that it would sink deep down and that we would get to apply it in a victorious way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We don't know how this works. Uh, Jen, do you have enough voice to read this, you think? Oh, wow. Yeah. We're going to take another pastor's wife tonight. Uh, Cassidy, why don't you read this chapter? Uh, Ms. Dunford's fighting through a little throat issue, and uh, I want everybody to be able to hear it. Uh, we're going to read the first chapter, uh, and then we will pick right up in the verses that we left off in, which I believe was verse 7. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses, aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon, and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country, to the great sea on the west. No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. 
As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So Joshua ordered the officers of the people, Go through the camp and tell the people, Get your supplies ready. Three days from now you will cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for your own. But to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the command that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you. The Lord your God has given you rest and has granted you this land. Your wives, your children, and your livestock may stay in the land that Moses gave you east of the Jordan, but all your fighting men, fully armed, must cross over ahead of your brothers. You are to help your brothers until the Lord gives them rest, as he has done for you, and until they too have taken possession of the land that the Lord your God has given them. After that, you may go back and occupy your own land, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you east of the Jordan toward the sunrise. Then they answered Joshua, Whatever you have commanded us, we will do, and wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your word and does not obey your words, whatever you may command them, will be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Amen. Be strong and courageous. Be very strong and courageous. Only be strong and courageous. You could get the impression that the task before him required both courage and strength. The task before us does too. Uh, it is very sad in the state of Christian affairs that we don't teach that. That we tell people that they will be benefited by heaven in this life and the next and that if you will just close your eyes, raise your pinky, and pray a prayer, that's all that ever needs to be done. That is so selling the fight short that it is embarrassing. And it is producing people who are Christian in name only everywhere. And the worst part about it is they actually believe that they're saved and have wrapped doctrines around themselves that say because... They had a warm, fuzzy experience that lasted about three and a half minutes. Um, It can never be taken away from them. Uh, Then our argument becomes whether or not it can be taken away or if they ever had it to start with. And um, you're on the wrong side of that. Uh, That is a terrible situation to be in. Being given false assurance. Having gotten to the promised land, they're now going to have to fight for it. God says he's going to give it to them seven times. And then tells them they have to take it. Salvation is very much like that. It is the free gift of God. And you have to fight to take hold of it. You have to fight with your flesh. You have to fight with your thoughts. You have to fight with spiritual powers and their puppets. The kingdom is a fight. Which is why Paul told Timothy, I have fought the good fight. Uh, I have agonized the good agony. The Christian life that is not deeply entrenched in an agonizing fight is missing out on the spiritual reality around you. 
Uh, and that's okay. I mean, a, a, a baby in a nursery has no idea his parents are at war. But at some point, you have to grow up to the realities that are around us. This is a serious life and death struggle. And it's one that we win through joyful warfare. Amen. Amen. Let's go ahead and pick up in verse 6, which is the last verse I remember covering with you. Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land. I swore to their forefathers to give them. Which two Hebrew words are <coughs> strong and courageous? Kazak and Amatz. Rak Kazak Amatz is the entire battle cry. Kazak is strength. Amatz is translated courage here. One of the reasons that God uh, encourages Joshua that he can be strong and courageous and repeats this three times with more emphasis uh, sometimes than others on certain words is because he's already given him seven promises in this chapter. Y'all remember seven from last week? I'll run through them very quickly for you. Every place you put your foot will be yours. Man, what a promise that is. And our covenant, the new covenant, is based on even better promises. So how much more strong and courageous ought you to be? Uh, Second one, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Oh, wow. But the Romans makes the same declaration about us. You're more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I mean, on and on and (coughs) on. If you're in Christ, you are an overcomer. No man stands against you. Do you feel that way? Because you're supposed to. And if you don't feel that way, then we need to adjust your feelings to be in line with the Word of God. Third promise. As I was with Moses, so shall I be with you. We talked a great deal about discipleship, and we don't have time to go through that or we wouldn't finish tonight. But the benefits of having seen a mentor go through failures and successes and Joshua knew what it was like to see that and not just a singular mentor in Moses but the team with Moses uh, and Aaron we we got to explore all of those intricacies I think I even gave a chart on the screen and we went through seven things from each of their lives that he would be benefited by we observed that all of the strengths and none of the weaknesses uh, of Moses and Aaron showed up in Joshua. That is extraordinary. That is the benefit of discipleship. Uh, it is our prayer that the strengths of this ministry team would be found in your life. The weaknesses would not be. Uh, anytime that uh, you are tempted, and it would be okay lovingly to point out areas your leaders need to grow, but any time that you see an area of failing, probably would never happen in Pastor Matt or Pastor Wade's life, but in my life, when you would see that, just remember, it's not my goal to pass those along to you. Okay? We want to give you everything that's good and leave you not with a thing that is bad. There was a twofold promise. Uh, number four, he says, I will not fail you or I will not neglect you. The Hebrew there was... Uh, Rapa, and um, it meant to become slack or relaxed or discouraged or disheartened or weak or feeble. And it meant that God would not stop being attentive to him. 
How many of you been in a situation where you thought maybe because you zigged when you should have zagged, God was no longer listening to you? Uh, he promised Joshua that he would not do that. Uh, the same promises are yours in Christ. In Matthew 28, of course, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. When you're in the land he tells you to be in, doing what he told you to be doing, you should have no fear that he's not with you. Uh, the second part of the promise was, I will not forsake or abandon you. I'm not going to get so disgusted with you that I just walk away. <laughs> it's funny. Uh, if we followed the Lord's pattern, our relationships would go pretty well. You know, Most relationships deteriorate pretty fast through neglect or abandonment. Right? And they're usually the greatest fears people in relationship have. Uh, either we're going to grow apart, that's the big one everybody says, or we're just going to quit on each other altogether. God's not like us. He said he won't do it. Isn't that good news? Yeah. Okay. The sixth one. You will lead this people to inherit the land Israel. To know that in your lifetime, you're going to see the promises of God. When you think of your calling, when you think of the things the Lord has said to you, some of them are many generations from you. It's your job to start them. But some of them you will see within your <coughs> lifetime. What a short span that is. And isn't it worth working to make sure that you see it? He promised Joshua he would. The seventh one, the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. If you're in the land that he promised, there's no area of the land that you could get to. Not a valley with giants, not uh, on the wrong side of the Battle of Ai, not anywhere <coughs> where God would leave him. Man, that's good news. Remember, all seven of those are found in promises. We've illustrated them for you in the Newer Testament that it was a mystery, but they're now applied to us mm -hmm. as well. That is, that's every reason to be strong and courageous. Yeah. And yet, the first question you hear when you advertise a mission trip is, is it safe then? Mm, wow. I just want to tell you, if you ask me that, I'm going to tell you, you're not safe where you're standing <coughs> right now. Mm. Not because we're in a big city, but because your faith is so small. Mm. Uh, that's, you're not safe anywhere with that attitude. But if you know that your God is for you and you're for him, you're safe wherever you go. Yeah. Amen? Amen? Okay. Let's then consider uh, the seventh verse and see where we can take that. Okay? This will be our first verse for the week. And uh, you have my word. We'll finish the chapter tonight. <clears throat> if six was be strong and courageous because you will lead... These people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Verse 7 starts with, be strong and very courageous. What word is new there? Very. Uh, is God just being redundant? That's, uh, that's an interesting question. Does he waste, does he waste his words? No, no, no. In Hebrew, a word, uh, words are devarim. A, a word is devar uh, or devar. Uh, a word is not just a conceptual thing. It's not just a thought transferred from me to you. A word is something that has mass in Hebrew. It can be placed somewhere. God places his word in the mouth of his prophet, for instance. The same way that you place food in your mouth. And God doesn't waste them. Uh, when the English says very courageous. We have the same two words. Pastor, if you turn on that uh, screen, 
We have the same two words that you were familiar with from earlier. Um, strong is kazak. It's Strong's number 2388. And then you see uh, courageous. This is amat. Uh, there's a prefix on it, but Strong's number 553. The next word <coughs> is, a, is translated very, and like most Hebrew words, there's more to it than that. That Strong's number is 3966, and I'm going to give you seven examples of it, although there are uh, <coughs> dozens and dozens of these, okay? And they'll be fun to hear. Uh, I didn't just choose the most extravagant or extreme choices of Moed. I, um, I chose ones that I thought would be fun for us to talk about. Is that okay? Yeah. So let me give you a definition of it real quick. For, for this word, which is a, uh, a mem, an alf, and a daleth, we can cover that some more in a minute, the uh, Browns, Driver, and Briggs says it's a noun, it's masculine, and it means, get this, muchness. <laughs> you got to love that. Uh, re remember muchness. Y'all say it for me? Muchness. muchness. Y'all remember that. It'd be fun in some of our other scriptures. Muchness, force, abundance, or exceedingly. You can kind of get exceedingly out of very, huh? Yes. When you see exceedingly, you can, you can get very. But which word appears stronger to you? Force. <laughs> yes, I mean between very and exceedingly. Which word do you think conveys more strength? Exceedingly. It's my supposition today that exceedingly is a much better translation than the word very, because to us we're like, hey man, that's cool. I like that very much. And very just doesn't carry with it the force of the Hebrew word moed. Uh, its definition in the complete word study, can y'all see that? Uh, it can be used, obviously we read as a noun, but it can also be an adverb or an adjective. Very greatly, great abundance, might or power. As a noun, it indicates might, power, or will. As an adverb, it usually means very, or all, as in all that God created was very good. It can take on the sense of exceedingly as an extension of very, and may come at the end of a phrase. We're going to see several of those. It can precede a word, uh, and it... Uh, emphasizes greatly, like uh, something is very exalted or greatly exalted. And then sometimes it gets a, a, an additional word and forms a phrase that uh, is a very strong uh, statement together. I want to show you some of these for fun, okay? Um, so let me hand these out so we can read them together. Uh, who wants to start? So, Rob, take Genesis 13, 13. Uh, Mary, you take Genesis 24, 6. Uh, Curtis, you take Exodus 1, 7. Um, Frank, you take Numbers 11, 4 through 6. But I want you to catch verse 10 as well. And uh, who's next? Spencer, take uh, Deuteronomy 6, 5. Uh, Steve. Take uh, Isaiah 64, 9. Sam, uh, take Psalm 21, 1. Um, 
Genesis 13, 13. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. They were sinning moed against the Lord. So they were sinning exceedingly. They were sinning forcefully. They were sinning... This is a word that increases what you're talking... It's not just sin. It's great sin. It's not just sinful. It's very sinful. Right? Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard, uh, hey, well, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, the wages of sin's death, and because that's true, you know, one sin's the same as the next. No, it's not. No, uh, some sin is moed. Other sin is not moed. All sin is bad, but some <coughs> is very bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's, let's just uh, brainstorm this for a minute and see whether or not your own conscience and the world around you has observed the same thing. It, it really makes our, our Sunday school lesson seem stupid when you hear this. Uh, would it be wrong for Boz to walk up and kick me in the face? Yes. Yes. No, wouldn't you like that? Okay, so that would be sin. Which would you rather have happen? Boz walk up and kick me in the face or me walk up and kick an infant in the face? Oh. Now, why did you react that way? Because one is sin... And the other is moed sin. Mm. Very bad. It's a forceful... It's, it's not just a mistake. This is something more than that. Mm. You, you follow me? Yeah. Okay. Now, keep in mind, this is not human reason that I'm... I, I'm demonstrating that that sin was great in Sodom by God's standard, not ours. Okay? Uh, you hear, well, you know, it's just a sin people need to be forgiven of. Well, I guess that's true. That's like saying that an atomic bomb is just a weapon of warfare. You know, it is, but it's not like every other weapon of warfare. Okay? Uh, Paul said about sexual immorality in general, all other sins done uh, outside the body. This one's done inside the body. Okay? So, so there are differences, and, and you, you probably want to become aware of that. Not so that you can begin to say, well, I chose a lesser sin. The idea is to eliminate sin. But you need to know that God does not view all sin the same. Uh, You're going to meet reprobates everywhere that tell you, well, if you look at a woman lustfully, and that is the same as committing adultery with her in your heart, then what's the difference between doing that and committing adultery? Well, one is great sin. Why is it great? Because now you've included two people. Now, Now you've ruined two lives instead of just your own depraved heart. Okay? Uh, let's take our next one. Genesis 24, 6. Abraham answered him, Make sure that you don't take my son back there. That was 24, 6. I'm sorry. Give me just a second. <coughs> what you're about to see is a strong search uh, with an Englishman concordance. It is in 24. It's probably 16, but uh, I may not have written it right. Yeah, would you take 16? Sure. Now the girl was... Ah, there we go. Now the girl was very beautiful. She was what? Very beautiful. A young woman who had not known a man in his She went down to the spring, took her jug, and came up. <laughs> it's funny. The Bible says some very interesting things uh, about Rebecca. Here it says she was moed beautiful. She was she was forcefully 
Uh, beautiful. Exceedingly beautiful. Muchness. <laughs> in another place, uh, it says she was lovely in form and beauty. That verse needs no explanation. <laughs> you know, uh, I love the graphicness of the Hebrew, though. It, it, this would be similar to saying she was strikingly beautiful, right? It even brought to mind a song from the 80s about a brick house. <laughs> mighty, mighty. And, uh, I was just trying to, number one, get you to smile. And number two, the Bible does not shy away from something whether it's very bad or very good. And it's pretty awkward sometimes the extent to which what it says is very good makes us blush. You know, uh, the Hebrew people were regular people, and God spoke to them in ways they understood. And uh, you single people in the room, God doesn't want you to marry somebody you think is ugly. I promise that. So you can just let that one go. Like, you don't have to worry about it. So if you think God may be dealing with you about someone, and you find them repulsive, it's not God. It's not God. So... That does not, however, mean that everybody that you find Moed attractive does God want you to uh, pursue. Uh, I find the best model is the one that worked for Adam. Let God bring you your spouse. It'll all work out. Amen. Okay, so uh, now that we have that theological mystery, uh, let's take a look this one set. But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. They became exceedingly numerous. What's crazy is you could use the, moed, the word moed to say strong. Strong numerous. <laughs> they became forcefully numerous. They, you kind of get the impression that they were becoming a force to be reckoned with. And that's why Pharaoh was... was so moed's more than very. It does, do you begin yeah. to get that? Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> so let's take our next one. Numbers 11, 46, <coughs> and verse the rival with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. Hold there, Frank. When you hear that, how do you feel? They ate in Egypt with no cost. I mean, except the seven days a week that they were in slavery and that they could be mistreated in any way, that there are seven Hebrew words in the first two chapters for the kind of oppression upon them. Uh, one of them, lachatz, is a crushing weight that was, but, but I mean, the food was free. <laughs> I mean, if you just, I don't know, liberated France, I don't know, they're too young for that. <laughs> or Poland, or some other place. Send the Salvation Army to liberate Canada. You know? um, if, you, <laughs> if you just liberated someone from an occupier at the great cost of your own blood, your own sons, your own daughters, your own treasure. And then, 
They said, you know, we really had it pretty good before you guys got rid of the Nazis. Uh, how would you feel? Mm. Read your next verse, Frank. Mm. Verse 10. Moses heard the people of every family wailing, each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord became exceedingly angry. He became Moed angry. He became strong angry. He became forcefully angry. His anger could be called muchness. <laughs> muchness, that's a great word. I had no idea that was a word before. Um, you're getting in a, 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 sen a sense of the way that Moed takes an existing word and uh, exponentially increases it. Okay. I didn't know any way to do this other than to let you read some of the scriptures. So let's take uh, Deuteronomy 6.5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. That word might is moed. Wow. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, might, or force. Muchness. You love him with your heart, soul, and muchness. Yeah, that's, that is an interesting thought, huh? You wouldn't say you love him with all your heart, soul, and very. Mm. Uh, okay. Right. Binks or something. <laughs> it might be Hawaiian pigeon English translation. But. Okay. Let's take uh, Isaiah 64 now. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on <coughs> us. We pray that we are all your people. <coughs> beyond measure. That idea of without them, he's literally saying, don't be angry, Moed. Don't be angry in such an overwhelmingly forceful way. Be angry in a way I can manage, Lord. <laughs> be angry in a way I can survive, Lord. I mean, I get that you're angry, but, you know, contain it in a way that leaves some room for hope. That's the idea there. Uh, if, you, if you put the converse on the previous passage, though, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with an uncontainable force. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Leaving no room for anything else. Psalm 21 1. Oh Lord, the king rejoices in your strength. How great is his joy in the victories he gives. How great joy. Moed joy. Your your uh your forceful joy. I have uh, a very, very exceedingly joyful uh experience because of the king's victories. That's what he's saying. These came from the law, the prophets, and the writings. Let's apply them back to our... You can kill that now. You, let's apply them back to our regular uh, passage here, though. Now that we know what Moed means, when you read verse 7, he's already said in 6, be kazak and amats, be strong and courageous. In verse 7, be strong and Moed courageous. Now, the reason that I bring that up is we all say, oh yeah, I'm going to meditate on this word. You know, I just, I love God's word. Like how much? Like Moed? Like it is going to take real strength and not just regular courage, but a kind of exceeding, forceful, uh, great courage to do what he's telling you to do. Okay. What does that tell you about the difficulty of living a life based on the Word of God? It's not going to be easy. Do you see what's wrong with making this bar so low for everyone? 
you're setting them up for failure. Making the bar so low for everyone, says you're not going to require any strength, you're not going to require any courage. We want people to uh, join Christianity, so we've made the membership as cheap and as broad and as wide as possible. And that is, that it's not. It never has been. And we're setting people up for extraordinary disappointment. Their lives get just wiped away. Now, having said that, whatever courage you need, whatever strength you need, He will supply for you if you do what He says. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, Anybody been in Christ more than a decade? Yeah. In that decade, have you accomplished things you didn't think you could have before? Mm -hmm. Oh, man. I am living my dream right now. I never believed that anything like this would be possible. It becomes possible when you walk in the strength the Lord gives you and you face each day with Moab courage. Amen? Amen. Let's look at that uh, together, that kind of uh, Moab courage that we need. Picking up uh, back in 7, be strong and be Moed courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. It's an extraordinary thing that God sends a nation into battle. They're going to go across a Jordan River. When they come out the other side, which, by the way, they're going to cross on dry land, just like their forefathers did, they're going to be facing a walled city. They have no uh, trebuchets. They have uh, no cannons. They have... They have no kind of armory for walls. If it depended on their strength, they would not. They're a band of ex-slaves. They're a band of ex-slaves' children who have been wandering for 38 years, 40 years in the desert. And um, they're not equipped for this. There's no chance of success for this. To make matters worse, there are seven nations there that have giants in them. Like, they'd be a match for any ordinary army. Uh, And God's plan is, I want you day and night to meditate on my word. I I want you to never let it depart from your mouth. You're going to have to be moed courageous with my word. You're going to have to not turn to the left or the right. Why would a warrior want to turn to the left or the right? Because whatever he's facing is so imposing that he's looking for any other route. Come on, what's your Christian life look like? Are you looking for any other route other than what God's put in front of you? Because you think you can't do it? Of course you can. It requires the crucifixion of yourself to do it. It requires you to trust in Him. If it wasn't bigger than you, you wouldn't have to trust Him. So of course the Christian walk is difficult. When we don't tell people this up front, we set them up for failure. Okay. I want to give you 18 references and... A Pirakei Avot, a Talmudic reference, 
about the usefulness of Scripture. Okay? Now, you may not think you need to know more about the usefulness of Scripture, <coughs> but let me ask, have you been careful day and night to meditate on his word? Have you been careful to never let it depart from your mouth? Before you answer that too quickly, yes, might I suggest you're suffering from the lower bar we talked about earlier? Because it was expected of every Jewish child, every Jewish child by elementary school to memorize five books of Torah. Anybody in here pass that test? Are we sure that we are meditating on his word? See, I find Christianity more like a collection of bumper stickers. You know, people can quote halves of verses every now and then, but most often the ignorance that prevails in Christianity, our church included, is a kind of strange tribal knowledge. Well, it says somewhere something like, and everybody accepts that. How low was that standard compared to what God has just told Joshua? Be very careful. Be very courageous. I want to share with you some passages. Is that all right? Yes. yes. All right, so I need to start somewhere in the room. We'll start on this side and we'll work around because there's 18 references, right? So Justin Linton. By the way, they're all going to go law, prophets, writings, older and newer testament. Okay? And I've grouped them together for you. Justin Linton. Deuteronomy 11, 18 through 20. JJ. Deuteronomy 6. Six <coughs> Justin Treister, Deuteronomy four, forty. Daniel, <coughs> Isaiah fifty nine, twenty one. Frank, Ezekiel thirty six, twenty six through twenty seven. Andrew, First Kings, two three. Caleb, Psalm 30, I'm sorry, Psalm 37, verses 30 through 31. Elder Steve, Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3. Kimberly, 2 Chronicles 34, verse 31. Uh, Buddy Brasso, Matthew 12, 35 through 36. Battlefield Aisha. Luke 11, 27 through 28. Uh, Susie, 2 Timothy. No, let's not do that. Let's do Matthew 13, 23. Joy Dang, 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17. Joy Resora, uh, James 1, 21 through 22. Cody, 1 Timothy 4, 15 through 16. Chris, you have Revelation 22, 18 through 19. Joyce, Revelation 3, 8. Steve Thomas, Revelation 20, 4 through 5. And I'll read the ethics of our fathers to you. <coughs> Okay, so that takes us all the way back to the beginning of that list, which is Deuteronomy 11, 18 through 20. <coughs> Deuteronomy 11, 18 through 20. Fix these words of mine. 
Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Hold real Father. quick. Fix these words in your hearts and minds. How permanent does that sound? Who in here was born after 1990? Raise your hand if you're born after 1990. Good. 8675309. They weren't even born when that song was written. They were not even on the planet. They were still thoughts in their parents' minds somewhere. Um, when you consider that, how did they get that fixed in their hearts and minds? They heard it enough that it got somewhere down in there. <laughs> so much for saying it doesn't matter what kind of uh, music I listen to because the lyrics aren't really, uh, you know, they're not what I'm paying attention to, really. How is it that we can remember the last two digits in a phone number from a song written in the 80s, but we don't remember what John 3.17 is? Well, you know why. Because we're not really meditating on it day and night. We are not really fixing these words in our hearts and minds. Keep going, Justin. Just start again in verse 18. Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Teach them to your children. Talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. When you lie down and when you get up. Okay. Somebody say lie down. Lie down and get up. Get up. I hope you're not lying down and getting up all day. I hope you lay down at the end of the day and you get up in the morning. Do you get the impression that this is an all-day pursuit? You mean it's not just a couple Sundays a month? It's not just a couple services a week? It's not just three services a week? How often... Are you supposed to be fixing the Word of God in your hearts and minds? Always. All day and all night. Now, that is a command from God. It's not just stated once or twice. It's, it's many, many times it's stated in the words. And we're going to get to some benefits of it in a minute. But I think what you're going to find is we claim and want all of the benefits, but we haven't done the work. Like, you know, memorization's just not... I wasn't talking about memorizing it. I'm talking about getting it in your heart and mind. As pastors, the number one thing that we note in the church is the faithless fear speech we hear all of the time. Totally faithless fear speech. Well, I know that the word says, but... What, what could be okay? That you know, we're sure of everything except that God's going to come through for us. Fix the word in your heart and mind. Now let me say this another way about this, this word. Fix the word in your heart. And I'm not going to draw a mind. If you get the word in your heart, you know what it will do? It'll fix it. If you get the word in your mind, you know what it will do? It'll fix it. You know what's wrong with your heart? You need more word. You know what's wrong with your mind? You need more word. Every marriage problem you have is a heart and mind problem. Another way to say that, you don't have enough word in there. Every relationship problem you have, your problem is the word. When you don't know the word of God, you will not be successful in what you do. But when the Word of God is something that is embedded in you, 
It is permeating you. It's controlling your thoughts, your emotions. When it's with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and all of your strength, you prosper in everything that you do. One thing that the book of Joshua teaches, just par excellence, is when you obey the word of God, you win. When you do not obey the word of God, you do not win. When you look at your life and you remove all of the window dressing of excuses that we make, all of the things that we say are someone else's fault, it will always come back to, have you fixed the word in your heart and mouth? Okay? And it really would eliminate our jobs if you did that. <laughs> it, it, it would, because all we ever do is point you back to the word. All we ever do is say there's a standard and you're outside of it. You know, you're going to have to to reach for that standard and trust God to help you do what you cannot do. That's all we, we say the same thing seven times a day. God is laying out for his people in Joshua how to win. Go ahead and read that verse one more time all the way through. Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Write them on your door frames of your houses and on your gates. How many of you have a picture somewhere in your house? That ought to be every every hand in the room or or your lying or homeless. If you put a picture on the wall that is a scripture someone else wrote, right? After a while, it's just a picture. Like, that's, those are two pretty frames. They mean absolutely nothing to me. I mean, not a thing. But if you write the scripture and you put it up in front of you regularly, it's an amazing thing. Every time you see it, you begin thinking about it. And then one day, it's just a picture again. So you know what you need to do? Take it down and put something up. Uh, the mirror in your bathroom, you'd do a whole lot better putting scriptures on your mirror then you do whatever else you're doing in your mirror all day long. Uh, After all, the Word is the mirror for our lives. And you need to change it regularly. I walked into Matthew Pirro's room when he was 17 years old, and I could find no sheetrock. It's three by five index cards surrounding him. You you need to get the Word in you. That that will solve most of your problems. Let's take uh, Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them in symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So we're getting the impression that this is an all-day-long immersion in the Word. Okay, let's take Deuteronomy 440. Keep his decrees which I am giving you today, so that it may go well with you and your children after you, that you may live long in the land the Lord your God gives you. Consider what he's just said. Keep these decrees and commands which I'm giving you today. He's giving them to you, but what must you do? He's giving you the land, but you also have to possess it. He is giving you salvation, but you also have to walk in it. It is always a twofold exchange. Second, he says why? so that it may go well with you. What does keeping the word do? 
cause it to go well with you. Who else does it cause to go well with? How many of you are parents? If you are not teaching your children the word regularly, you are failing them as parents. That's not somebody else's job. It's supposed to be your occupation from the time you get up to the time you lay down. Right? Everybody who homeschools, everybody who uh, tutors their children, everybody, we struggle with inadequacy about this. You're like, I, I don't know if I'm the one to prepare them for their career. If you're not, then who the heck is? Because it is our job, first and foremost, to teach them the word. Wow. Do you really think that the physics teacher is going to teach them the word? Which begs another question. What are they teaching them? And is it really the key to success? How many people do you know that got a degree from an expensive university and have not yet earned enough money to pay back their loans? <laughs> Do you think maybe people are being sold a lie? That if you yield your children to the government, if you yield them to the liberals in higher education, if you mortgage their future, they will be a success? Oh, and how many people have so believed that that you are terrified if you don't properly prepare them to get into the right college, their lives will be failures. You, you are not showing very much respect for the Word of God. I'm talking to everybody in here, but, but you ladies, you're more fearful about this than the men. You're scared they're going to miss out on their proms. You're scared they're going to miss out on their socialization. How about the fact that they're missing out on the Word of God taught by you as you walk along the road, as you get up, as you lay down? I will not yield to not one person on this point, because if you think differently, you're wrong. The number one obligation that you have is to teach your children the Word of God, and you cannot teach them what you do not know. The more you swim in the Word, you will be a better parent. It will go well with you, and listen to the promise in the verse, and your children <coughs> after you. See, you have a great effect on what is happening in the lives that come after you based on your adherence to the Word of God now. You may have remembered from Exodus that you can affect a thousand generations after you by your love of the Lord today. Yes. Yes. I didn't raise Judah to be a physicist. I didn't. You, I, you can think that I so underprepared him for the world. Watch his life. See how he does. Watch his son's life. See how he does. I'm doing the same thing with daughters. But the same thing with sons. I... I don't know anything else that I can do for you than to say, trust the Word of God, and you need to kick back against this secular lie that is floating around the One Association churches that somehow or another they'll miss out on something. They will miss out on the Word of God if you don't do your job. Amen. So, in Deuteronomy 4.40, we find out that the command is a two-part thing. It's given to you, that's grace, but you have to keep it. That's faith. You trust God enough to do it. There's a promise that comes with it. It will go well with you and your children. Man, if you can't motivate people with that, I don't know what you could, but he adds one more to it, and you will live long in the land. Do you mean to tell me I have personally the ability to affect 
generations after me and also to prosper in this land? Yeah. And it has everything to do with how you treat the Word of God. So when we're talking about be very, be moed, courageous, be very careful, be moed, careful not to turn from it, honestly, can you say that you've been very careful not to turn from it? Or do you only turn to look at it when you've already experienced a car crash for veering from it? Okay. So, I don't want to beat you up. This word is to lift you up. It's like giving a man who is lost a map. That's much easier to do if he admits to being lost. I submit to you that the church is lost in regards to scriptural knowledge. The, the, The church at large does not respect the word the way that they should. Do you know how I know that? You don't carry your Bibles with you everywhere. You don't open when verses are being read. You, you rely on a kind of tribal knowledge. That's not going to work. The days that we're entering into are the days like Joshua. It is our job to fight for the promises that God has given us. And you're going to have to know the word. Not approximate it. Not know someone who knows it. You are going to have to know it. Right? Okay, amen. So now, let's move to the prophets. Because the good news about this is God will help you get the word in your heart, in your mind, in your mouth. No more scripture light. And I'm not talking about another church. That's, that goes without saying. You know, you went to a many thousand member church, and in the years that you were there, uh, you didn't grow in anything but worldliness, I don't even need to point that out anymore. That ought to be pretty darn clear to you. God will put His Word in you in a way that travels through the generations if you yield to Him, if you let Him to, to do it. So let's take Isaiah 59, 21. As for me, this is my covenant with yes. them, says the Lord. My Spirit who is on you and my words that I have put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth or from the mouth of your children or from the mouth of their descendants for the time, this time on and forever, says the Lord. Remember when I said in Hebrew, words have mass, so to speak, they're real things? They're inheritable. Oh, wow. Putting them in you is like putting them in a trust for your children's children's children. Wow. Because they're going to see them in your possession all of your life. Okay? Um, Watch the pastors in this church. We are doing that. We are doing it at all cost. Uh, the only way that our little daughters grow up to be successful is if they grow up to be godly. The only way that our sons are successful is if they grow up in love with God and proficient in His Word. Right? Uh, math is important. English is important. All those things are important. Nothing is more important than that. So we'll fight through some math lessons if we have to. We're going to get the Word of God right. I want to encourage you parents to adjust your priorities. Okay. Um, Yeah, take it. 36-26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move on you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. 
You know, there is a beautiful and a frightening truth in this. If you're filled with the Holy Ghost, He is moving you to keep the laws. If you're filled with the Holy Ghost, He is moving you in an ever direction of a renewed heart. That is a beautiful part. The frightening part is, if you've been filled with the Holy Ghost many years, and you are not learning these things, then you are resisting Him while you're saying you're filled with Him. Okay? To be made new means that the Holy Spirit is in you, He's giving you a new heart, and He is taking you in the direction God wants to go. How slow are we sometimes to follow His leading? We say, well, He's not leading me to do that. <clears throat> or you're not listening. Right? This... Uh, this promise is such a good one, though, because it takes aptitudes out of the mix. See, you may just not be able to with your old broken heart. That's okay. He gives you a new one. Right? You may just not be able to live up to the righteous requirements of the law. That's okay. He puts a spirit in you and causes you to. See, nothing depends on you, and yet everything depends on you. I, he gives you the righteousness, but you have to walk in it. You see, it's always, things are declared clean by two or more witnesses. It needs a split hoof and it needs to chew the cut. It needs faith and it needs deeds. They work together to show that you are clean before God. Interestingly enough, that has also been removed from the church at large. We say we have faith and that's enough. Well, George Michael said he had faith and that was enough too, Right? Till his brain exploded with cocaine and he's receiving in his own body the punishment of his perversion. Mm -hmm. You know? Um, I believe that God will meet you right where you are at. You say, well, Eric, I'm realizing my child is already 12 and a half years old. Well, praise God. You you got the next five and a half years. That's enough. That's that's enough. But the thing is, is I'm just getting getting into this and, and, you know, already my kids are out of the house. Well, you're not dead yet. They're not dead yet. Right? Um, how long you have waited to become something that you were always supposed to be is not an excuse to not become it today. Okay? Uh, let's, let's move to First Kings and, and you'll see a benefit here. First Kings 2, 3. And observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in His ways and keep His decrees and commands, His laws and requirements as written in the law of Moses, so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go. Do you hear that? You prosper in all you do, wherever you go, if you were doing these things. It's amazing the number of times this promise given to Joshua is repeated throughout the Bible in various ways, and yet we treat it like a mystery. You know, I was listening to Susie talk about her father and how difficult some of the things in his life have been. And I'm fighting off tears because I relate to everything that, that she's saying he's gone through. He can't help but prosper everywhere he goes. You know why? He's totally dependent upon the Lord. He's got nothing except God's Word. You know what a good place that is to be? You can have everything in the world and be denied God's Word, and you are a pauper. You can be denied everything in the world and have God's word and you are a rich man. Amen. See, I am rich in ways that people will never understand. I, I don't even have to make my own decisions. The word makes them for me. I mean, I, I can be absolutely free of burden because I'm not steering my own life. My one responsibility is to go where he's leading me. 
Okay, let's take Psalm 37. Psalm 37, verse 30 and 31. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. His steps or his feet <coughs> do not slip. When you have invested the word of God into your heart, you don't slip where everybody else slips. It's not that you're a stronger man than them or that they're a weaker man than you. You simply have invested something in your heart that keeps you on level ground. And they have it. Okay? The word of God invested in you keeps your foot from slipping. Uh, Psalm, 10, uh, Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Did you hear the day and night again? Yeah. An all-day affair, all-day affair, all-day affair. Did you hear the three benefits? Fruit in season, leaves that do not wither, whatever you do prospers. Day and night. If the Word of God is your pursuit day and night, if you're investing it into your heart, into your life, into your marriage, into your children, then when scorching land, the scorching heat comes, your leaves don't wither. You don't have to worry about the economy. You don't have to worry about anything else. You produce a fruit. No, no matter what, whatever you do prospers. And whatever you have will be enough. I mean, it's extraordinary. How could we miss this? Do you know that the first 100 colleges formed in this country were seminaries? The first 100. They were seminaries. The first textbook. Any of the children that, that were in the first school systems in this country ever had was a Bible. Do you know why? Because they understood that above all else, if we master what is in this book, we prosper. How far have we fallen? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that those men were great or were godly or that this was an amazing Christian nation. A lot of that is almost fairy tale. They were sinful, they were wicked, they were problem. And even when sinful, wicked, problematic men invest in the Word of God, it begins to bless them and change their lives. Okay. Um, let's do this. Let's take the last one in the writings. You need to know that 2 Chronicles 34-31 is uh, about King Josiah, and he is an example of a man who invested the Word in his heart, and he prospered. He's an example of a man who did not walk in the counsel of the wicked, uh, or sit in the seat of the mockers, but delighted in the law of the Lord. And that's why he's written about here. The king stood by his pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands, <coughs> regulations, and decrees with all his heart and all his soul, and to, be, <clears throat> and to obey the words of the covenant written in this book. He stood by a pillar and he renewed the covenant. You know, maybe you need to set up a physical marker or <coughs> reminder in your life that says, when I stray from these, everything goes to pot. <coughs> when I keep these, everything goes good. That way, every time you see it, I, I'm going to tell you, we do the best marriage counseling in the entire world. 
We do. We have the best record of anybody you have ever known in regards to marriages that stay married, stay godly, stay full of spirit. <coughs> of anybody you'll ever meet. And 100% of our marriage counseling is because people stop doing what we told them to do, which is, of course, invest in the Word of God. 100% of it. There's never anything besides that in it. And you know what? It usually takes about three times going through marriage counseling for people to get it. The first time we do it, before they're married, and they spend the whole time convincing us that they're never going to have a problem. We just don't understand <laughs> how much they're in love. We don't understand the extent to which God has, has done this, and what we really need to do is just get with their program. You know, sign off, man. You know. <laughs> <laughs> we've been there, we've done that this is not our first rodeo, we work through it tell them to, hey man, get keepsake notebooks you're going to want to write this down you're going to need it Please. you don't know, you're going to need this okay pastor then they come back to us usually somewhere between 6 months and 18 months and they're like, I don't know what's going on you know? <laughs> I, me, I didn't do nothing. <laughs> and we go through it again, and they're like, oh, yeah, no, I hadn't been doing that. Uh, like I, didn't, I didn't know. Like, I, I just didn't know. <laughs> All right, we're going to record this. <laughs> and usually, we have one more time where they're like, you know, nothing's working at all. And he said, no, you're embarrassed because you're still not doing what we told you, and you're reaping the rewards of not having done what we told you. Usually about the third time, people go, oh, golly, there's a cause and effect relationship here. You know, it actually works. They start calling people like, this is the best ever. You know who did? You people need this. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's incredible. I've been doing it so long now that it's, it's a very predictable path. I do it because I enjoy seeing marriages safe. I mean, I really do. It's like, um, it's the strongest part of my life in this ministry, and, and I love it. But the, the, the dirty secret, if there was a, a copyright somewhere in here, all we've ever done is just teach what the Word says. There's no men are from Mars, women are from Venus. There's no unique scientific facts about communication. We ignore all of that crap because it's what it is. Yes. And we get straight into the Word. I mean, it is just the Word. Um, probably we should get back to the Word. Uh, that puts us in Matthew 12, 35. Matthew 12, 35 through 36. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. Isn't it crazy how sufficiently blunt Jesus is? Yeah. Uh, it's like David. From evildoers come evil deeds. Well, thank you, David. Um, <laughs> when we hear this, though, it's important for us to think through the mechanics. God said he'd put the word in your mouth, but here it's in your heart. Of course, we find out in the very same chapter that a man speaks out of the abundance of his heart. Unfortunately, when you hear the word, it's not placed in your mouth or your heart. Where do you hear the word of God? In your ears. In your ears. Mm -hmm. It's in the meditation of what you have heard that you are depositing it in your heart. It's in thinking on it after you heard it. It's in meditating on it as you walk along the road. It's in your daily events 
applying what you heard that it begins to get into your heart. And once it is truly in your heart, then when you're in trouble, it's what starts to come out of your mouth. And as it's coming out of your mouth, it starts to guide your feet. See, a lot of times we are hearers of the word only, but we are not doing it, just as James said. Hearing it was the first part of the process. Meditating on it is the second part, so it gets in you. That's why so many of us carry scripture cards and Bibles everywhere we go. It's why even when we think we know the scripture, we turn to it anyway. Because the more it's getting in there, the more it will be there when we need it to come out of us. And as it's coming out of us, it starts to direct the affairs of your life. There is no shortcut for this process. All of you are beautiful people and none of you are so beautiful that you'll get exempted from this. All of you are pretty smart folks. None of you are smart enough to be exempted from this. This is the process at any age, at any level, in any position, at any time. This is the process. All attempts to shortcut it only show one terrible problem. The best looking, the smartest, the uh, most esteemed, the highest position. We all have the same diseased, wicked hearts that need the word of God to secure. Okay? And that's why we have to do this. And the more we do it, the more we enjoy it. Um, by the way, it's why we've eliminated almost all talk of sports from our church. Okay? I mean, it's why. I don't want to waste time talking about grown men playing children's games. And nobody talks about women's athletics. They don't watch them either. <laughs> they don't. I they don't. You, you, you have to be so far into idolatry that you didn't even notice which gender was playing to watch a women's basketball game. I mean, it, it's, it's incredible. It is true. It's, uh, it, it, it's, it's true. The things that are watched on TV that are women's athletics are watched for an entirely different kind of idolatrous reason. Nobody cares about beach volleyball unless scantily clad people are playing. I mean, that's, that's the truth. You know that the Muslims in Ghazian Tep asked us a question? If America is Christian, and we never said that, they did, then why do the women on your TVs take off their clothes, and why is your nation obsessed with sports? That's what they said. So I'm not going to argue about it anymore in the church. We're just going to say, let's talk about something useful and not idolatrous, like the word. Okay, uh, how about Luke 11, 27 through 28 for another fun scripture? Luke 11, 27 through 28. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. Yeah, that, that's a wimpy uh, translation of that, isn't it? Blessed is the breast who gave you suck, is what the King James says. Oh that's goodness. incredible. But listen to the assertion. Listen to the assertion. This must be your mama's doing. No. No, blessed is the one who hears the word of God and obeys it. It doesn't matter who your mama is. I'm living proof. All that matters is whether or not you will get the word from your ear to your heart to your mouth and then to your feet. If you will do that, the sky's the limit for you. Jesus corrects this immediately. You get the impression it was kind of embarrassing for the person who said it, right? Uh, the way to blessings in this world 
is in obedience to the Word of God. It has nothing to do with family lineage except that your family lineage may have given you access to the Word of God from an earlier age, like Timothy and Eunice and Lois. Okay, uh, let's take our next one. Matthew 13. Does it that having good soil represent those who truly hear and understand God's word and produce a harvest of 30, 60, or even 100 times as much as has been planted? Noble soil is in reference to the human heart. Man was put in a garden and told to work the soil. That soil represents a heart. Sin has caused weeds, thorns, and thistles to grow in the human heart the same way it does the soil. The first man is a gardener, and every man that's come after is a gardener of his own heart. And if you will plant that word in your heart, not just your ear, if it makes it into your heart through meditation, through loving it, thinking on it, talking about it all day long, the promise is it will produce a crop. Okay, The word is a catalyst. It cannot enter you without changing you. There is... Every reason to believe that if you meditate on the Word day and night, everything about your life will change. Have you noticed that our psychologists don't ever cure anybody? Psychiatrists have less than a 3% cure rate. 3%. Now, you wouldn't... Boz runs an auto clinic, and you you wouldn't take your car there if you had a 3% fix-it rate. (laughs) Of course, the Word of God will fix your mind and your heart. Maybe... Maybe we've approached mental illness wrong. Maybe what mental illness actually is is the effect of sin on your life. Okay, um, let's take Second Timothy three fifteen through seventeen. Can I start in fourteen? You can, Joel. <laughs> but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I remember when John and Joy didn't know the word at all. Uh, I remember their very first biblical questions. I have watched the Lord transform everything about them because they have taken seriously his word. Uh, he is fulfilling all of their dreams. He has been gracious to not let one promise fall to the ground. To the extent to which they have trusted him and trusted his word, we've seen their lives straighten out economically. We've seen their relationship straighten out. We've seen their relationship with the outside world straighten out. And now they're producing godly offspring and raising up disciples themselves. This is what the word does. It equips you for the good work that God called you to do. So no matter where you start from, you could be sitting here today with a house that is foreclosed on, a marriage that is needing to be foreclosed on, no hope, no future. And when the Word of God enters you, it changes the situation. It equips you for everything that you failed at your whole life to be a success at. It is the secret to prosperity in everything that you do. But not just hearing it. You've got to get it into your heart, out your mouth, and guiding your feet. Okay. Unfortunately, we've sold this short by two-thirds in most of our preaching and teaching. If we will do what the Word says, we will get the Word's results. Let's take Revelation 20... No, uh, James 1, 21. 
Okay. If you do these things, the results are definite. Do you know one way we can know that for sure? God said it to Joshua, and then he went in and did it. Even though there were giants, even though there were 31 principalities in the area, even though they were flawed, didn't have armory, they, he went in and did it. That serves as a testament for all time that you can do it too, which is the point. Let's take our Revelation scriptures, our uh, prophet, New Testament prophet. Revelation twenty-two eighteen through 19. Revelation twenty-two eighteen through 19. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if, in, if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. This, this curse is repeated twice. It's repeated in the first chapter and in the last chapter of Revelation. And I suppose there are some that would want to apply it just to the book of Revelation. But given that it's the last book in the Bible, and the man who wrote it was the last living apostle, and church history says that he testified to the authenticity of the other books in the Bible, I kind of think it applies to the whole thing. And the strongest warning in the Bible is about modifying God's Word, about adding to it or taking away from it. You know, you know what that sounds like? I know the word says, but. That's what it sounds like. Um, you need a, I want all of the word and nothing but the word attitude. You need that. You'll prosper in everything that you do. Listen to how weak the church at Philadelphia is and what God says to them. And uh, Revelation 3.8. Revelation 3.8. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. They are in a world of hurt, but they have one thing going for them, the only thing that matters. They have kept the word. It doesn't matter what your situation is. If you hold fast to the word, you will prosper and you will succeed. It also doesn't matter what kind of prosperity, strength, wealth, security you have. When you let go of the word, your life is destined to crash. You just don't know at what hour it's going to happen. The word is everything. Okay? Um, I couldn't say that enough. This is our 17th scripture. Are you beginning to get it? Yes. Okay, let's take scripture 18, which is uh, Revelation 20. Yep, Revelation 20, verse 4 and 5. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their forehead or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. They were beheaded because of their testimony and the word of God. That means that they loved the word of God more than they loved their own life. They gave up their life because of the Word of God. And the result was they come to life with Christ and they reign in glorified bodies. Listen, if you don't love the Word of God enough to make it your daily, all day long pursuit, then you certainly don't love it more than you love your own life. Okay? That's just the, the harsh truth about this. And the converse is also true. You may have failed in almost everything you've ever done. 
You may be the most flawed pig that has ever lived, second only to me. And if you love the Word of God, there is hope for you no matter how little strength you have. There is hope for your future generations no matter what the situation is. If you love the Word more than any other thing, then you will reign with Christ. And it doesn't get any better than that. It all comes down to your relationship to the Word of God. And what we want it to come down to is our relationship to a one-time event at an altar somewhere. It doesn't work that way. It never has worked that way. At no time in history was that even a believable lie until the last hundred years. And we are such a crooked and depraved generation that for the first time in history, most believe <coughs> that's true. And even in our strongest Christian families, we see such worldly tendencies. All kind of, well, why is this wrong? If you were actually meditating on the Word, you wouldn't have to ask me that. See, if you will get in the Word, you'll become wiser than your instructors for sure. That's where we're learning everything. Amen? Amen. Let's do this. Let's keep going in Joshua. <clears throat> Back to verse 8. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful, say be careful, careful. to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. He keeps saying that. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So Joshua ordered the officers of the people, go through the camp and tell the people, get your supplies ready. Three days from now, you will cross the Jordan. Do you think it's a mistake it's three days? No. All through the book of Exodus, every time we came to three days, I showed you. Three days is the distance between life and death. Three days is... Look, if God has dealt with you, do it immediately. If you absolutely just are not sure, pray about it for three days. Right? You get beyond about three days, and... What, what you're actually doing is just delaying the decision that you know you need to make because you don't want to make it. it. It it doesn't take more than three days to hear from God, ever. I mean, you may have to pray for 21 days to get an angelic messenger to show up for you, but three days is the distance between you and life and death. Uh, three days took a, a man crucified on a cross for your sin and raised him in the righteousness of God Almighty, a spirit-filled Christian ought to be able to make a decision within three days. When we don't do it, it's almost always that we're just delaying. It's almost always we don't want to do what he says. It's an excuse for procrastination in the name of prayer. Three days from now, you will cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for your own. Verse 12, but, somebody say it, but, but to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the command that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you. The Lord your God is giving you rest and has granted you this land. Your wives, your children, your livestock may stay in the land that Moses gave you east of the Jordan, but all your fighting men, fully armed, must cross over Ahead of your brothers. You are to help your brothers. I'd like to talk to you about this for a minute. <clears throat> Regarding the word of God, I have a purique avote, an, uh, an ethics of our fathers quote for you. 
this comes from the uh, Talmud, and it goes like this. He, Hillel, would also say, one who increases flesh increases worms. One who increases possessions increases worry. One who increases wives increases rebellion. One who increases maidservants increases promiscuity. One who increases manservants increases thievery. One who increases Torah increases life. One who increases study increases wisdom. One who increases counsel increases understanding. One who increases charity increases peace. One who acquires a good name acquired it for himself. One who acquires the words of the Torah has acquired life in the world to come. Hillel was a pretty smart fellow. He had learned that pursuing everything really came to nothing except pursuing the word of God. Now, we're talking about the Rubites, the Gadites, and the Manassites. In the same chapter of the Pirakea vote, it says this in verse 2. Rabbi Yossi would say, The property of your fellow should be as precious to you as your own. Perfect yourself in the study of Torah, for it is not an inheritance to you alone. And all your deeds should be for the sake of heaven. <laughs> what we're about to do is go through a few reasons that the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the Manassites had to go and cross into the foreign land and fight with their brothers. And what I'm asking you to do is think about what this means in relation to you and the rest of the world yet to receive Jesus. You and the rest of our Christian brothers <coughs> in areas of the world where they are suffering greatly while we are not. Okay? Yeah. That's, that's what I want you to think about. Number one, no true believer lives independently of other believers. I know we think we do. We say things like, my Jesus, my personal Savior, those things. No true believer can live independently of other believers. I'm going to show you why. In this, this example, the natural example, if the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the tribe of Manasseh do not go fight for their brother's inheritance. If they say, I got mine. And the Israelites go into the land and get defeated. How long do you think it would be before the Canaanite fury came down upon them? <coughs> See, the product of selfishness is really just your delayed destruction. Do you follow me? When we don't care what happens to another member of the body of Christ because they're a long ways away, or people that have never heard about him because we don't have to see him every day, you are delaying your destruction. Mm -hmm. You cannot be saved until certain promises are true for every man. You, you cannot enter the kingdom until certain conditions have been met for the whole world. And so if you camp out where you have received what you needed, you are denying yourself the fullness of what you need. You just don't know it. I want to give you some examples. Uh, can I hand them out? There'll be seven of them. Yes. Christy, take uh, Exodus 13, 19. Uh, Mandy, take uh, Isaiah 66, 19 through 20. Uh, Abigail, take Esther 4, 13 through 14. Jules, take Proverbs 24, 10 through 12. Curtis, uh, take John 16, uh, no, John 10, 16. 
Larissa, take Revelation 6, 9 through 11. Stephanie, take uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and just start reading in 21 for your notes, say through 26, and we'll read as much as we need to to get it. This has to do with your relationship to the larger part. Exodus 13:18. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. Okay, let's assume that the resurrection of the dead is true. Amen? Amen. Amen. Assumption? So, you promise... Hey, Joseph, I'm not going to leave you in Egypt because I know you want to participate in the resurrection. And uh, so you're going to raise wherever we raise, right? And then you break your word and there's a resurrection of the dead. At the resurrection of the dead, you're guilty because he's raised somewhere other than you. (laughs) This seems like a silly example. I get it. It's no more silly than asking a group of people to carry around your bones for 40 years in the desert. It speaks a powerful message. There's a reason why. The people of God were always supposed to receive their inheritance together. You, you hear me? Yes. Joseph wanted to receive his inheritance along with his brothers. Abraham receives the land along with his descendants in the resurrection. The point is, it is not okay for 10% of God's people to enjoy 90% of the land. That's not okay. God wanted... Those who receive first to fight for their brothers who had not yet received, which is why the book of Joshua opens that way. See, when the church develops a selfish attitude that says, I get mine and it doesn't matter, right? You are cutting yourself off from the very promise that you are claiming you're in. In this advent of prosperity gospel, I have never seen a more selfish church. We actually can stand on TV and make a pitch for multi-million dollar jets so you don't have to fly with regular people. Literally, one idiot from Louisiana said, I'm not going to be stuck on a tube of demons with people. He'll stand before Jesus for this thievery that is going on. I mean, he will. Now, it's easy to point to those extreme examples, right? I'm talking to you about the need for the rest of the world to come into the same inheritance that you have. Can you live with the fact that you've been hearing about Jesus all of your life and there are people that have never heard? See, I can't live with that. The further I grow in Christianity, the more I inherit, the more responsible I feel to people who have not heard. It has grown in me to the point where I actually feel backslidden the longer that we're standing with all Christians. Uh, I'm praying for you to wake up to the idea that you have a responsibility because the gospel's made it all the way to you. Let's take Isaiah 66. Offerings to the temple of the Lord and ceremonially clean vessels. 
when we're setting up the world to come, what the Jews call the Olan Haba in Isaiah 66, one of the signs that the new world is beginning is the phrase, all your brothers. There will not be one who is left out. The first thing that those who understand and are inside the revelation of God do is grab all of those who are outside and bring them to the holy mountain. See, the heart of anybody who's been made truly right with God is to see everyone else reconciled to the Lord. The things that distract us from that are when we know we're not really right with God, we feel incompetent, we don't feel like we should, like we're poor ambassadors, all of those things. Or when we're not right with God and it shows just by our callousness, our reckless indifference to the world around us. You have to care. You care because the one who saved you commands you to care. You cannot obey him unto salvation and be denying him in your daily walk. It's not possible, despite what the uh, books about lordship have said. Okay, let's take Esther 4.13. What if you've come to your royal position for such a time as this? That's a little girl named Hadassah. The world knows her as Esther. And the word to her is just because you live in the king's house, don't think that you'll escape judgment. You've come to your position for a certain reason. You know what the reason was? To save the rest of the people. That was the reason. Now, why have you come to your royal position? See, you were born for such a time as this, and if you stay silent at this time, you may exclude yourself from the position that you believe you hold, and God will simply use someone else to do it. See, we all love songs about for such a time as this. We love the story until that story makes application to your daily life. You live in the king's house every day. How can we not petition him? for our brothers who are in danger. How can we not go to them in response to that petition? We have to. We we have to. If you're filled with the Spirit of Christ, this is what the Spirit of Christ compels us to do. Proverbs 24, 10. If you falter in times of trouble, how small is your strength? Rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards water. If you say, but we knew nothing about this, does not he who weighs a heart perceive it? Does not he who guards your life know it? Will he repay each person according to what he has done? Man, if you let the gravity of that scripture settle on you, Mm -hmm. let's just take a global perspective for a minute. We didn't know they were going to the gas chambers during World War II. We just, you know, we we didn't know. Well, number one, that's been proven categorically to be completely wrong. Uh, Elder Steve got physically sick walking through Yad Vashem. Couldn't, couldn't hardly do it. It is absolute fact that the world knew and looked the other way. God won't. Amen. He won't. And those men will be held responsible. But that scripture is not written to those men alone. Can we stand by while others are going to hell? We really can't. And if we do, 
if we develop an attitude that says, I don't have to cross the Jordan to help others enter into the land, I've already got mine. I'm going to stay and enjoy it. If we do, he says so clearly in that, won't he know it and won't he perceive it? Yeah, he will. So the, the Christian life is always an outward-focused life. You invest at home, and that overflow goes outward in every direction. You know, my children, when the brief time that they were in elementary school, witnessed everybody in the school all of the time. The teachers, the nurses, we got more phone calls about that than any other thing. When I put them in, in homeschool, because they were traveling with me, the teachers actually celebrated it. They, they, they celebrated There's a nurse that we still see after all of these years in restaurants, and she still talks about them. What you're investing in in your daily life shows up in how you live your outward life. That's, that's where it shows up. So if we live in communities where we don't talk to our neighbors, uh, we don't interact with the outside world, we just take care of us and ours, then we cannot be connected to Christ. In America, it's a very me-centered gospel. But the gospel of the Bible says, if you have that attitude, won't he see it? And won't he recognize it? Yeah, he will. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's take John ten sixteen. I love the sheep that are not the sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and they shall be one flock and one shepherd. He said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. Must. Can you really be in love with the Lord and have different priorities than he does? Loving him as your Lord means that you adjust your priorities to whatever his are. And sometimes we just don't know, but once you know, you have to do it. Uh, Revelation 6, 9-11, through 11, this is a staggering book. When he opened the, the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony that had obtained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the land, of the earth, and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had Consider this. They've already died. They're already at the throne of God. What concern and care would they have in the whole world, right? Isn't that what we say? I mean, they've gone to a better place. They finished their race. There's no problems for them. Isn't that what we say? Of course we do. I'm a pastor. I say it all of the time. Is that the picture painted in Revelation 6? What are they concerned with even after they're standing in the presence of God? When are you going to make things right on the earth? When are the rest of our brothers going to be whole? When is this going to happen? Even in the presence of God, having received their inheritance, do you know who they're concerned about? Those who have not yet. Is that incredible? Even those who are in the presence of God are concerned about those who have not yet had that opportunity. Amen. Okay. This is the Transjordan tribes teach us something. God is very concerned about you getting your inheritance, but no more concerned about you getting yours than everybody else getting theirs. So if you were lucky enough to receive yours first, your entire life's pursuit needs to be other people receiving it as well. And if it's not, then you don't have the same heart that you're <coughs> 
evangelism's just not my thing. How can you have the great Holy Spirit inside you and say something like that? Okay. Uh, all right. This comes when you don't meditate on this word, though. It does. You can develop any weird idea when you don't have this word. 1 Corinthians 12, 21. Oh, who is reading that? 1 Corinthians? Okay, go ahead, Steph. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment, but God has put the body together, giving great <coughs> honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. We ought to have equal concern for every part of his body. Yeah. Um, we demonstrate this as a church, corporately, regularly. That's why we go to the countries we go to. That's why when we meet a man in India, we never stop caring about him, supporting him, and sending people to him until the day we die. That's why uh, we support people in every hemisphere, on both sides of the equator, in every inhabitable continent except Australia. That's, that's why we do it. And we're not doing nearly enough. We're going to keep going. Mm -hmm. This is because God cares very much about those who have found their inheritance helping everyone else get there. Is that pretty clear? Yeah. We're not independent from the rest of the body. We, we can't be. Um, let's take this one. The second reason. It's treason to the king to ignore his commands. It implies that you are the only object of his desire. It is treasonous to the king to ignore his commands. It implies that you are the only object of his desire. Let's take Genesis 12. Uh, who, who will read? Okay, Frank, you take Genesis 12, 3. Chris, you take um, Psalm 96, 3 through 4. Steve, you take um, Ezekiel. Did I give Ezekiel? No, Ezekiel 36, 22 through 23. Um, Timo, you take Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Uh, Olivia, you take Revelation 15, 4. And Brenton, you take Romans 16, 25. These are to be fairly self-evident. God's glory is displayed in selfless love. We have to help our brothers. So let's hit Genesis 12.3. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. The goal of God since he called Abraham was for every person on the earth to be blessed. We can't stop just because we happen to be in Americans and feel ourselves blessed. Psalm 96, 3-4. Psalm 96, 3-4, Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. 
This actually brings in two components. He cares about them, but also, if you care about God, we want to display His glory. See, it's, it's twofold. If you care about God's glory, you want the whole world to know it. Amen. And if you care about the rest of the world, you want them to know about God's glory. It's, it's twofold. It'd be like having a wife that you say that you love, but you never want to introduce to anyone. That speaks more of sin than love, right? If you're really amazed and enthralled with your king, you want everyone to know about him. Yes. If you find out he really loves them, then it works in two directions. Okay, let's take our next one. Ezekiel 36, 22 and 23. Therefore, say to the Israelites, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. We're running short on time, and I want to get to these, and we're going to. Let me just say that when the largest church in the United States says serving God is not really about Him, it's about you. When they say that, and you hear, profane my name among the nations, I'm not doing this for you, I'm doing it for the sake of my great name, and I will show myself holy through you, uh, you have to wonder whether or not that's heresy, what you heard. And um, it's the state of things that nobody seems particularly bothered. Let's take on Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Not safe nations. Not nice nations. Not nations that uh, have good intentions for you. All nations. Every nation. And um, to say no because it's not safe is, would be like if the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the Manassites said, you know, uh, we heard on that side of the river there were giants. So, you know, you're going to have to schedule somebody else. We're just not going to make it. Right? Which begs the question, how long before those giants cross this river? Right. Oh, yeah. See, the church of God is supposed to be on the offensive. We are supposed to be attacking the gates of hell, not hoping that the gates of hell don't attack us. We are supposed to be on the offensive. And Christians who play it safe are under attack when they were supposed to be the ones attacking. Okay. Who have the next passage? Revelation 15.4. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. All of the nations will see his glory. His righteous acts are being revealed to the whole world. We're the ones that help reveal them. You know, uh, When you get a chance to pray for somebody, let's just say it's in the rainforest of Suriname, and they've never seen somebody that is uh, looks like you they have just a total amazement that it's out of devotion for your God that you would be there saying you love them and you pray for them and they get healed they love the God that sent you is that amazing and they give glory because his righteous acts are revealed you know Um, they're amazed 
at one thing and one thing only, that the people that they don't know care about them. And yeah. why would they do that? See, when Christians are selfish, we play right into the world's hands. Yeah. We're acting like them. Mm-hmm. The world only cares about itself. We're supposed to care about the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Okay? Um, that was 1625? No, that was, uh, let's do Romans. Romans 16:24. <coughs> now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past. The, uh, the gospel has reached you. It's made it as far as you. That baton has been put in your hand. And now the great proclamation for the rest of the world is up to you. And if that is not important to you, ask yourself how important it would have been to you if you didn't get it. See, somebody brought it to you. So who have you, in turn, brought it to? See, that, that, that needs to be the way that we think. A crop 30, 60, and 100 fold. The third reason I wanted to appeal to you about the Gadonite, the Gadites, the Reubenites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh is refusing to go will affect your heart in an irreparable way. Okay? Uh, refusing to go has an effect on your own heart. You ready for that? Uh, Elder Steve, you take Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6. Aisha, you're going to turn to uh, 1 Kings 8, and um, I'll tell you each of the verses here in a minute. 1 Kings 8 actually has a phrase in it 12 times. 12. Mm. Okay. Um, I will list them for you. I'll put them on a screen, is what I'll do. Baj, you take Proverbs 18.1. Susan, you take John 13.34. Patricia, Revelation 19.10. Cassidy, Hebrews 3, 13 through 19, and uh, Matthew, take Philippians 2, 4. Uh, So, Elder Steve, you can go whenever you like. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6. Hear, O Israel... The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. When you love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength, then the commandments are on your hearts. What happens when you break a command to go into the nations? It affects your heart, it affects your soul, and it affects your strength. It's true in both directions. When you obey a commandment, it helps you love the Lord with all of your heart. When you uh, break one, it begins to erode your love for Him. Not going, not being concerned about your fellow man, changes your view of God. Have you ever seen people that seem to say that they're in love with the Lord and they are nasty about everyone around them? When you stop caring about people, it changes the way that you view God. It is because you love Him that you care about people, but in loving people, it is loving Him. Matthew 25 so clearly says that. Uh, Aisha, you uh, go to 1 Kings 8 and uh, verse 30. Wade, put this on the screen for us. Actually, um, not verse 30. Start, uh, Aisha, in uh, verse 23. 23. Uh-huh. 
Moses and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven, above or on earth below. You, who keep your covenant of love with your servants, who continue wholeheartedly in your way, you have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. With your mouth you have promised, and with your hand you have fulfilled it, as it is today. Now, Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, the promises you made to him when you said, You shall never fail to have a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons are careful in all they do to walk before me as you have done. And now, O God of Israel, let your word that you promised your servant David, my father, come true. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy. O Lord my God, hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. Okay, hold there. Now, what you're going to notice is in his prayer, listen to the number of times he's praying to God about God's people. Okay? Not about him. Not about receiving more. But about God's people. In verse 30, hear the supplication of your servant and of your people. Do you hear how he's praying for them, not just him? Verse 33. When your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy and have sinned against you, he he says he wants him to hear them. In verse 34, when you hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people, you know, bring them back from the land. Verse 35, when the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because your people. Verse 36, twice, your people. Verse 38, your people. Uh, Verse 41, your people. He's literally praying, praying about foreigners who are not included. Okay? Verse 44. When your people go to war. I mean, this just keeps going. In verse 49. And forgive your people. Verse 51. For they are your people, your inheritance. 52. May, the eye, may your eyes be opened to your servant's plea and the plea of your people, Israel. Twelve times in his prayer, he is praying for them, not him. Yeah. I don't think it's a mistake that twelve times he references God's people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, You can probably put that numerology together yourself. Huh? Okay, let's take our next passage. Proverbs 18.1 An unfriendly man pursues selfish ends. He defies all sound judgment. When you are unfriendly or selfish, it begins to change your own heart. It begins to ruin your judgment. You're not looking at the world correctly and understanding the world when we stop caring about others. Right? It changes you. That's what that proverb says. An unfriendly man who is selfish, his judgment is profaned. Okay? Uh, let's take our next one. John 13:34 A new command I give you love one another as I have loved you so you must love one another Leviticus 19 says twice to love one another the new part of the command is in the way that Jesus demonstrated love in the way that I have loved you but listen to how central this is to the heart of the gospel 
The heart of the gospel has to do with loving someone else in the way that Jesus has loved you. If you have been a recipient of his affection, of his revelation, the way that you reciprocate is to love others. Isn't that amazing? Mm-hmm. That, that is so much different than Islam. That is so much different than Buddhism. That is so much different than the other religions of the world. What we see laid down in Joshua for us is a roadmap in how God's people are supposed to deal with the rest of God's people. Okay? Let's take our next one, Revelation 19. Revelation 19.10 Then I fell down at his feet and worshipped him. For he said to me, See that you do not do that, for I am only a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Yeshua. Do you hear how the angels speak? The angels view John as as uh, special and all of his brothers, anyone who holds to the testimony of the Lord. Well, everybody has to have a chance to hear the testimony of the Lord. And then those who will hold to it, they become family forever. We would know that it was wrong to watch your physical brother starve while you were eating a taco. We would know that. Anybody who holds to the testimony of Jesus Christ is more than your physical brother. Amen. That creates a responsibility for us. Yeah. Let's take Hebrews 3, 13 through 19, talking about the effect of disobeying this command on our heart. But encourage one another to daily as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. What does sin do? It hardens. It hardens. And it deceives you. See, it messes up the judgment in your heart. When you break a command, it begins to screw with your decision-making process. You can't get it right anymore. It hardens you so that you're no longer sensitive to what God is saying. Keep going. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end the confidence we had at first. As it has just been said, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Listen, this brings us to a really critical understanding in the first chapter. We know that God was unhappy with a whole generation who would not go in the land, right? He allowed them all to be wiped out. And he raised up their sons who would go in the land. And he said, you are going to inherit. If one of those sons then gets his inheritance and doesn't care whether the rest get their inheritance, he's showing himself to be exactly like the first generation that was in the desert and deserved to die. Does that make sense to you? Because their promise was a collective promise. They're all supposed to get the inheritance. It's not done until everybody wins. This is the spirit of Romans 11, if you ever want to understand that. Our salvation is not complete until Israel is saved. It's really that that one. Let's take a very practical application of Philippians 2.4. Each of you should not only look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Okay, that's said pretty, uh, pretty plainly, huh? We care about your interest, but you have to be looking to the interest of others. Okay? 
in Joshua 1.14, which is our last bit of scripture to cover for the evening, and then we will have uh, thoroughly covered the first chapter. I want to show you uh, a phrase that is here. Uh, somebody read Joshua 1.14 out loud. Your wives, your children, and your livestock may stay in the land that Moses gave you east of the Jordan. But all your fighting men, fully armed, must cross over ahead of your brothers. You are to help your brothers. Okay. You are to help your brothers. Who is all your fighting men? Did you hear that? And then it adds, fully armed. The phrase, all your fighting men, in Hebrew here, is kol, gebor, Hail. Uh, I want to show you those those words defined. Coal. Coal is an interesting word. This is so thorough that if I just read the definition, I think you will get what I'm after. A participle meaning each, every, all, everything, the whole, the entire. It has an inclusive meaning of all. Or every one of something. Its exact meaning must be discerned from its usage and context. Some representative samplings will help. With a definite article, it means the whole or everything of something. Used with a definite noun, it expresses the whole of that noun. The whole earth. Whole people. Used after a noun, it can refer to the whole or the entirety of the preceding noun. Before a plural noun, it usually means all, all nations. Before a collective noun, it means all or every, all people. Before a singular noun, it means every. I don't know how we have to discern from usage what it means. It always means all. All, every, whole, everything. How many fighting men are supposed to go? All. Whether it comes before the word or after the word, whether the word is a noun, whether the word is singular or plural. It always means all. All your fighting men. You know, that means not one left behind. Not one. Say, wow, we got a missions team going. All. All. All your fighting men. And if you are not a fighting man, I'm just going to go ahead and say you're not a man either. Okay? Because it is not a man that will not fight for what God has said is His. That's not a man. Okay? I said this to the church in Romania, and two Romanians jumped up and bought plane tickets immediately. Okay? Two. The next word, gibor. So all means all. Gibor. An adjective meaning brave, strong, or mighty. Listen to how it's used. The word refers to God Himself as El Gibor, in other words, the Almighty, usually rendered as Mighty God. It is used to describe a child born to rule and govern God's kingdom as Mighty God. The Lord is depicted as the Mighty One for His people Israel, or Mighty to save. Angels are depicted as Mighty in strength. It describes the might and the power of the Messianic King. All your mighty, like God, mighty, Mighty men are supposed to go and fight. Let me ask you, do you have the Spirit of Christ in you? Then you are a mighty fighting man. Okay, Mighty here is a huge compliment. Gibor is a strong, valiant, courageous, the strong and courageous fighting man. Last word, Hail. 
A masculine noun meaning strength, wealth, army. The word has the basic idea of strength and influence. It can be used to speak of the strength of people, of horses, or of nations. God is often seen as the supplier of Hayil. When describing men, it can speak of those who are strong for war, able to judge, or are righteous in behavior. When describing women, it speaks of a virtuous character. The idea of strength often is used to imply financial influence, a military influence, or a numerical influence. Let me ask you, which one of these definitions does not apply to us? We're supposed to be, all of us, fighting <coughs> men who are strengthened with the armory of God, who are influential with the strength that he gave us on the world around us. He said, take all your mighty men of valor and cross the river. Now, let's just suppose for a second that right now in the room, we said, take every mighty man of valor and you step across this line, right? Oh, yeah, you know, pastor. Everybody step across. What would you think anybody still sitting on the other side of the line? What happens when we will not go fight for our brothers? You show that you are not a man, you are not mighty with his strength, and you have no valor. Okay? Now let me ask you about church at large. Why are all the miracles on the mission field? Because all the mighty men of valor are there. Why is it always that somewhere else these things... It's where all the mighty men of valor are. Okay? If you want to see God conquer kingdoms through ordinary men, if you want to see giants fall, if you want to have that sense of gaining what was promised, it happens when you are courageously concerned for other people fighting for what God wants in their life. That's how it happens. So I don't have to do that there. No, I know. If you do it here, you'll want to do it there. If you don't do it here, you won't want to do it there. Okay. There's a relationship between these things. Let the Word of God dwell in you richly. It is the key to success. Fight for your marriage. Fight for your children. Fight to influence the world immediately around you. And God will begin to use you in the world far away from you as well. I know this to be personally true in the life of everyone who invests in the Word. There is no one ever, ever that I've seen that invested the Word into their life and it did not have dramatic effect on their home, their neighborhood, and the world at large. It's one life, it's one family, and it's one nation at a time. We founded a ministry out of a living room that is touching every corner of the world for one reason, the Word of God inside of us compelled us. The reason we called it life-changing ministries, plural, is we always intended to be an umbrella of ministries that came from your life. Now we're waiting to see what the Word of God does in you. That's what we're waiting. Don't stand and watch us cross the river. All, cold, all of us, every, entire, whole, every part of us, all of us. Amen? Amen. We're going to come back to Joshua 2. In Joshua 2, we send out two spies to confirm that everything God said is true. A lot like Revelation 11. Amen? Amen. So let's stand to our feet.